Revelation chapter 13 tonight. Revelation chapter 13. <clears throat> and um, I wanted to... I'm not going to do tonight what I wanted to do. I, I think we've... Uh, there's so much more that we could, uh, I guess, speculate on. It, it, we, we've been studying the person of the Antichrist. And um, Revelation chapter 13 is a, is a whole chapter devoted to describing who he is, where he comes from, what his work is like, him and the, um, the uh, false prophet. Uh, chapter 13, 13 in the Bible, of course, always a number of rebellion. And these are the two consummate rebels of the last days. This false Christ, this political, military, spiritual leader, and his sidekick, the, the false prophet, the two of them working together, are going to influence the entire world for evil. And uh, they are coming. I mean, they m most likely are alive somewhere right now. And um, it's just that the Lord is still wrapping a few things up with the, with the body of Christ. And we're going to be going home soon. And I had intended tonight, originally, because uh, I think last Wednesday night we ended it by, I gave you a teaser concerning the identity of the Antichrist as um, being, related, uh, being connected to uh, the person of Judas in the Bible, only because they're the only two, um, uh, the only two in the Scriptures that are called the son of perdition. The Antichrist in uh, First, Second, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter two is called the the son of perdition, and in uh, John chapter thirteen. Judas is called the son of perdition. And there are some things that are very similar between Judas and the Antichrist. And, but it's, and I did throw some of those things out to you last week. But in just thinking about it, I mean, we could go have a study on Judas. And is, is the Antichrist going to be in some way related to or connected to Judas? It's very, very likely, but to be honest with you, it's just it's a lot of speculation. Um, and I could give you the verses uh, where Judas, in Acts chapter 1, where it says that Judas, when he died, he went to his own place. Very strange expression. Uh, he didn't go to heaven, didn't go to hell, but went to his own place. In the book of Revelation, there is a king um, in the bottomless pit, and this king is an angel or an evil spirit called Apollyon, and Apollyon in Greek means, uh, not that we ever need the Greek, but it is a Greek name, So, and the word means destroyer, and perdition means destruction. So there's a king in this bottomless pit that comes up in the tribulation. So there are some connections. Um, is it enough to build a doctrine around? Uh-uh, nope. So anyway, I decided I'm not going to go there tonight. But if, you could, if, you, if you're interested and you want to pursue that a little further, uh, you could certainly do that and we could talk about it. But um, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to um, you know, preach a whole message on it like I intended to. But what I would like to do tonight, and I've been promising you this for a while, um, so I'm going to put away pages 1, 2, and 3 because that's exactly where I was going to go with uh, Judas, but we'll leave that alone. And um, I want to talk about... Because I've, I've, I've mentioned it a few times, and some of you have asked, you know, when are we going to do this? And I think I'm going to start it tonight. But I want to talk about the signs, or I don't like that term, but the indications, the, uh, the certain indications that we have that um, this is the last generation, that we are living in the last generation. Um, now, some people say, well, folks have been saying that even since the time of, you know, <laughs> since the Middle Ages. Every, you know, Christians in every age have been expecting the Lord to come, you know, at any time. You can read back through church history and you can find where even, um, I have a lot of books on the Waldensians. And the Waldensians were certain that the Pope was the Antichrist and that they were on the verge of uh, the tribulation and the return of Christ. And that was in the 1200s. <laughs> so in every period in, in church history... Believers have been anticipating the return of Christ, right to do so because the Lord made a promise that He's returning, obviously. So even in the you know even in the first century, Christians were right to have lived as if the Lord could have come right away. But obviously, 
he wouldn't have come at those times because prophecies in the scriptures indicated that he would be gone. He would be away from the earth for a certain period of time. And we've looked at those before here on a Wednesday night and at many other times as well. And it's certainly from John chapter 4 and Hosea chapter 6 and Hosea chapter 3 and other places in the scriptures. The time allotted to the Gentiles, meaning the time when God would temporarily turn away from the nation of Israel and the Jewish people as the focus of his attention. In the Old Testament, God ignores China, God ignores South America, God ignores you know, North America, the Indians, God ignores everybody in the Old Testament, and it's only Israel that mattered to him. A very relatively small nation, small group of people, but they take up the entire Old Testament. It's obvious that God was, God's plan was to do something through that nation in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, that through Abraham and Abraham's seed, who was Christ, that God was going to bless the entire world. So, but in the Old Testament, God's focus was on them. They were God's instrument to bring the truth of God to the world. And the prophets out of Israel were sent not only to the Jews, but many of the prophets from Israel were sent to the Gentile nations, or at least prophesied concerning the Gentile nations. And some of them were sent physically to go to Gentile nations, like Jonah. Jonah was sent not just to write about Nineveh, but to go to Nineveh and to preach against that that great city and that kingdom. And so, and other prophets were sent to do the same. So in the Old Testament, Israel was the focus. But from the time of Jesus Christ, when Israel rejected that long-awaited Messiah, and God set Israel aside, then God's dealings have been obviously with the, the universe, the rest of the world, most of whom are Gentiles. And so the focus has been on the Gentiles, meaning out of the Gentiles, from among the Gentiles, God sent the gospel to the Gentiles, to the whole world, really. He's not excluding the Jews, but now a Jew has to get saved like a Gentile. Now, there is no difference. Uh, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, Paul wrote that now God looks upon humanity and he makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In other words, the Gentiles are not saved through the law any longer. We don't go up to Jerusalem to worship. We don't keep any of the, those old feast days. All of that was finished, completed, set aside, the commandments that were against us, the ordinances that were against us were nailed to the cross, and now it's the gospel of grace to all the Gentiles. But, like we've sort of said, you know, not almost jokingly, that this is a limited time offer. It was not in an indefinite period of time that God would extend this offer of free grace to the rest of the world. And God did not leave it open-ended. He indicated through prophecies and through examples in the scriptures exactly how long this offer of grace to the rest of the world would be available. And the, we've seen it. That, that time was 2,000 years. Right? The Gentiles were given two days. A day is with the Lord is 1,000 years and 1,000 years is a day. Right? But the calendars are not exactly accurate. You know, Nobody could even say for certain what year Jesus Christ was born. I mean, we're not even going to get into that, but I spent a long time just a few weeks ago just studying calendars, just like looking in history, ancient history, at the calendars that have been used from the founding of the Roman Empire, 700 B.C., four different calendars that they've used, and why, for the most part, uh, man has done a terrible job of keeping track of time, <laughs> you know? Much, uh, I'm sure that was a part of God's plan. It's so that you couldn't ever, with any absolute accuracy, ever nail something down and say, such and such a year, such and such a month, such and such a day. God didn't want it to be math that had you anticipating the return of Christ. God wanted it to be faith. God wanted it to be, trust what I said and keep looking up. Right? Because I can't do math. I'm terrible at it. My wife can tell you that. So God didn't want it to be math that made us look for his return. He wanted, so God fixed it so that the calendars are all messed up. You can't say with any certainty concerning anything as far as dates and things. However, with the exception of recent history, 
I mean, we certainly know that in our generation, uh, forget about what happened before us, but at least we know, you know, things are relatively within the space of time that we've been alive. Uh, we know what day it is and so on and so forth. And so we're not going to look at ancient history. We're not going to count the years from the birth of Christ or anything like that. And we can't even count. It would just be a guess to say, well, when did God start counting the 2000 years? Did he start counting at his birth? Did he start counting at his baptism? Did he start counting at the crucifixion? Did he start counting at the destruction of the temple? I mean, none of us could say for certain. When did God start counting that 2000 years? So it's basically... It's, it's interesting and it's fascinating to study, but in the end, it isn't too helpful. You know, in general, it just all points to one thing. We is close. We, we are closer. We are closer than we've ever been before. Right? That, that's a profound statement. We are closer than we've ever been before. But I want to I see if we can really get an idea of how close we are. And here are some verses tonight. And some things, some of it, obviously tonight, we're going to just lay the foundation for this because I have 20 pretty sure certain indications and we could go further. I mean, I'm, I'm picking out the 20 most obvious ones to indicate that this is the last generation. But the first thing that we need to do before we get into those indications is we have to define what a generation is because that in itself is a little controversial. Uh, some people say, well, a generation is uh, 40 years. A generation is 70 years. A generation is 100 years. Uh, people have tried to, you know, do the math. But in general, a generation has to do with the average lifespan of a people at a particular time on earth. For example, before the flood, do you know how long a generation was before the flood? The average lifespan of someone before the flood of Noah was 930 years of age. That's the average, 930. That's the average length of a generation. So, and you can say, well, where'd you get that from? The Bible. All right, you just go back and read in your Bible, and it gives you all the lifespans, and you just do the math. I can do that with a calculator and just get the average. And it's 930 years is the average lifespan of all those guys before the flood. So that was a generation in those times, in those days. All right? But... Obviously, nobody's living 900 years, you know, long now. And since the flood, the lifespans have actually been coming down, 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 and down until they leveled off around the time of King David and they have been consistently a certain period of time since around the days of King David. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, so let's start this study on the last generation in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's see. <clears throat> and most of this tonight is going to be Scripture. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, scoot over near somebody that does. Make sure that you get this. Matthew chapter 24. Let's start in verse number... Um, uh, let's see, let's start in verse number um, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, by the way, Matthew 24 is a prophecy. Um, it's not just the book of Revelation that's prophetic in the New Testament, the portion of your Bible that's called the New Testament. Because many of the things that Jesus Christ said, he, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, is the last prophet. Not Muhammad. The last prophet is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's what Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says. You know, God who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in times past unto us by the fathers, hath spoken unto us in these last days by his Son. Alright, so Jesus Christ is the prophet in other words, that mouthpiece for God for the last days. These are the last days. They started when the Lord Jesus Christ set his feet on this earth. We've been in the last days. But we are in those, literally, those last days of the last days in the time that we're living in right now. But Jesus Christ is the prophet for the last days. So, um, and the book of Revelation 
John, in a sense, was prophesying the future, but it wasn't John's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. So it's really Jesus Christ is the prophet, even in the book of Revelation. So here in chapter 24, he's prophesying. This is near the end of his life before he went to the cross, and he's giving his disciples prophecies concerning the future. And in Matthew chapter 24, he talks about... Uh, the things that are going to take place during the tribulation. That period on the earth, uh, when the world is in turmoil, the Antichrist is in power, everything's in upheaval, and the church is gone. By the way, that time is coming very, very soon. And the world, the one we live in right now, not one like, you know, don't imagine a world of the Jetsons, you know, with you know things like flying. I mean, the world you're in right now, with Mazdas and Toyotas and Fords and things, that world with your neighbors and my neighbors and your co-workers are going to go into tribulation. This isn't like 3,000 years in the future. This isn't, you know, way, 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 way off. This is right here on us right now. And um, so the Lord was speaking of those days. And it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. All right, so at the end of the tribulation. All right, the rapture takes place, the church is removed, we're gone, we go to heaven, and then the tribulation begins on the earth when God pours out His wrath. At the end of that period of time, it's a short period of time, and because God makes a short work of His judgment. It does not take 500 years to judge the earth. And the Bible says, even the scriptures say, that, you know, when sentence comes, sometimes it comes suddenly. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. So the tribulation comes suddenly upon the earth. And it doesn't take a long time. It's a short period of time in which the nations are judged and the wrath of God is poured out. But at the end of that period is when Jesus Christ returns to the earth to set his kingdom up. He returns in glory and power, and that's what this is describing. Verse 30, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right? So, um, uh, Obviously, the most, probably the most climactic moment in all of world history when Jesus Christ comes from heaven with an army, with an army to set his kingdom up on this earth by force. He's not coming in like he did the first time in a manger, meek, lowly. Uh, the Bible said of him on that on his first time here, that he would not break a bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. He would be so gentle, and he was in everything that he did. But the second time he comes, Revelation 19 describes him as coming back in vengeance. Second Thessalonians 2, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says, with fire and vengeance. And in Revelation 19, he's, he's clothed in garments that are already bloody before he leaves heaven. I mean, he's... He's ready for war. And there's a sharp two-edged sword that goes out of his mouth. So, the invitation to the world right now is come to receive and love and trust that Savior who died for you on the cross. But the next time, those that... I mean, when, when this world rejects that message of a loving, merciful Savior who cared enough about them to shed His blood and go to hell for them, but the next time, that's, the, that's what the world saw when he was here the last time. But when the world sees him again, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a completely, in a completely different way. There's no meekness now. He's coming as judge. He's coming to make war. And so the disciples were interested in, when is that going to happen? In fact, chapter 24 basically begins, all these prophecies in chapter 24 began with a question on the part of the disciples, when is all this going to happen? That was the thing on their mind. When? Look at in, back in verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, 
When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So the whole point of chapter 24 is not so much the what as it is the when. That's what was on their heart. He didn't ignore their question. He filled them in on a lot of what was going to happen, but their question wasn't what's going to happen. Their question was, when is it going to happen? And without giving them a date or anything like that, he gave them the indications that, and some things in this chapter that they could, that somebody reading this at that time could know that those days were very much upon them. And we'll just go a little further. We were in uh, verse number 30, uh, 31, and then now look at verse 32. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. Learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, it's no secret that in the Bible the fig tree is always associated with whom? Israel. It's the symbol of Israel in the Bible. God uses that fig tree many times in parables to represent the nations. And there were times when Jesus Christ even, remember once he passed by the fig tree and um, there were only leaves on it and the Lord wanted, in Mark chapter 11, he wanted to see fruit and there was no fruit on the tree. And so the Lord cursed the tree. The disciples came back the next day, marveled because the tree overnight had withered away and died. That tree, that fig tree represented Israel. That's what God was saying was going to happen to the nation of Israel in the near future because of God's curse. Because Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 included both a blessing or a curse for the nation. If they followed God, obeyed God, He would bless them, their land, their children, and everything. If they disobeyed God, even in the days of Moses, that prophecy was made. But... If they were not obedient, then God's curse would come upon them. So the Lord walked by this fig tree, cursed the fig tree, and the tree withered up suddenly and died. It was, it was a picture of the nation of Israel. There was another time the Lord came by a fig tree in the Gospels. And, um, and the tree was three years old. And in three, that fig tree, and I don't remember where the passage is, but... The Lord came, somebody could probably find it by the time I'm done telling this story, but he came by the fig tree and the tree had no fruit on it and he was going to cut the fig tree down and the, and, uh, the, the master of, the, uh, of the, taking care of the fig tree said, Master, leave it alone, just leave it alone. Let me dig about it and dung it for one more year and then let's see. Let's see what happens. Now, we don't know the outcome of that story. We don't know because I don't think the Lord... It tells you that the Lord came back and found it bearing fruit a year later. But the point is is that this fig tree was given three years and then a little extended period of time up to four. And the tribulation fits right into that time period. Nation of Israel given a, a tree that has not borne fruit but God in His mercy, rather than cut it down and destroy it, God gives them an extended time of mercy uh, for them to bear fruit. So the fig tree is Israel. So now look in, in the Lord prophesying as to the when. Remember the question was when. And so He tells these guys, when you see this fig tree not begin to bear fruit yet, but just begin to put the leaves forth, like it's... It's getting ready to bear fruit, but there's no fruit there yet. This isn't fruit. This is just the leaves. But when you see it, begin to put forth leaves. When you see these things, know that it is near, even at the door. Then he says in verse number 34, Verily I say unto you, and this is the question, this is the controversial verse, this generation... In other words, the generation that sees the fig tree begin to grow again, begin to put those leaves forth. The generation that sees that, sees the leaves, sees it begin to um, 
uh, put forth leaves, the generation that sees that shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Now, because of that verse, back around um, 19, late 70s, there was a guy that put out a book and um, he was absolutely sure that the rapture was going to take place in 1988. Because he figured, uh, on, based on math, that uh, a generation was 40 years in the Bible, and the nation of Israel became a nation, began to put forth those leaves in 1948, when it became a country again, after nearly 2,000 years of not being a nation, the Jews scattered all over the earth, uh, having no nation of their own, no land of their own, and Israel, the fig tree, be began to, those leaves began to bud again in 1948. So based on that, in a generation being 40 years, he assumed, that the rapture should come in 1988. Well, he and a whole lot of other people were really disappointed in 1988 when it didn't happen. And there were some, there were some preachers that were on that bandwagon for a while. And so, uh, but this, was, this verse was the basis for that. But let's just go look in the scriptures at what a generation is and see if it has anything to do um, if, if we can learn anything from that. Uh, go back to, and the most obvious verse that we're going to turn back to is in Psalm chapter 90. Psalm chapter 90. In Psalm 90, and I think we want to go down there like around verse 9. Psalm 90, verse 9. <clears throat> For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. All right, how long is that? Seventy years. All right, seventy years. But it's not a... It's not a period of time written in stone because the rest of the verse goes on to say, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. All right, so according to Psalm chapter 90, the years of man, in other words, his life expectancy, his life expectancy would be 70 to 80 years. Now, that was written, actually, not by David, although most of the Psalms are written by David. But, coincidentally, this one was written by whom? Look at the top of it. Moses, who lived to be 120. So, and in the days of Moses, the men around him, Aaron and others during that time, in um, the early years of the history of Israel, the the average lifespan was more than 70. Moses lived to be 120. Aaron did too, almost as long. Um, even, um, well, let's back up a little bit. <clears throat> let's talk about average lifespans. We already said before the flood, they lived a really long time. Noah was 500 years old when the flood came. And then he lived another 350 years after the flood. Um, Shem, Noah's son was a hundred years old when the flood came. He lived 500 years after the flood. Do you know that Shem was a contemporary of Abraham? Abraham and Shem seems incredible that Abraham could have sought out Shem and talked to him about what was it like to be on that ark. And there's many people, and I'm one of them, who believe that Shem was probably Melchizedek, the, old, the priest in Genesis chapter 14 that Abraham met after coming back from the, the war that he fought against those kings that took Lot captive. And he gave tithes to Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High, the Most High God. And so you know that there would have been at least one person on the earth at that time, it had to be Shem, who would have known the Most High God very, very well. Um, but anyway, but their lifespans were incredible. But now on 
this side of the flood, the lifespans dramatically begin to shorten. For example, Abraham, go back and look at just a couple. I'm not going to bore you with too much of this, but I just want you to see that from the flood of Noah until today, well, not till, until David, the lifespans shortened more and more, and then they, right around the time of David, they leveled off and they've been the same ever since then. So David is about uh, halfway in history from the time of Adam until today. And so for more than half of that time, man's years have been exactly what Moses prophesied they would be. Because when Moses wrote this, it's obviously the future because he said, the days of our lives are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, uh, yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off. And that did not apply to Moses himself. So Moses had to be speaking as speaking prophetically about the future. Right? Let's, for example, go back and look at uh, Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25 and verse number 8. Genesis 25, 8. Uh, verse 7, I'm sorry. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. So how old was Abraham when he died? 175 years old. He's just a kid compared to the guys that lived just three or four hundred years before him because the flood was only three hundred and some years before Abraham, the flood of Noah. And there were people on the earth right after the flood that were 500, 600 years old. So Abraham is 175 years old, but notice what the next verse says about him. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age. An old man. He is an old man at 175. Whereas there's a guy walking around on the earth right around this same time who's 600 years old. But God is already telling you, I'm, I'm changing things. And so Abraham is considered an old man, good old, and he's at a good old age at 175 years. Uh, Isaac, uh, go to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Abraham's son, Isaac. Genesis 35, look at verse number 28. 35, verse number 28. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years. He lived to a hundred and eighty. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days. He is an old man at a hundred and eighty. All right, so these guys are stretching it. All right, a hundred and eighty. Uh, go to First Samuel chapter two. First Samuel chapter two. Now this is about three hundred, four hundred years later. All right, years, many years have gone by. Go to First um, Samuel chapter 2. And you remember uh, Eli the priest in the Old Testament. First Samuel chapter 2, verse number 22. Now, Eli was very old. Eli was very old and heard all that his sons... Uh, wait, am I in the right one? Yeah, 222. Okay. Um, he is very old. And I forgot. I did not write the verse down where it gives Eli's age. I'm sorry. I don't remember where that was. Um, and I think I have... Uh, I don't remember where the verse is. I'm sorry. I forgot to write it down. But Eli was 98 years old when he died. If you can look it up in a concordance, you can... Jot that down. Eli was 98 when he died. And what does it say about him? He is very old. 415. 415. Now, Eli was 90 and 8 years old and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And chapter 4 is the chapter where he dies. So he dies at 98 and he's considered an old man. So you see, from the days of Noah, 930 years to Shem, 600 years. Abraham, 175, uh, down to 98. Now, 98 is old. And, and the further you go in the Scriptures, 
the lifespans are dropping, dropping, dropping. But then they stop at a certain point. Um, go to First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. And uh, let's look over in verse number 28. First Chronicles 29 and verse 28. <clears throat> Thus David, oh, 26. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel, and the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Right, so he was a king for 40 years. Does anybody remember how old David was when he started being a king? 30 years of age. The Bible says he was 30 when he was um, crowned as a king. Same age that Jesus Christ was when he was baptized. So David became a king at 30. He reigned for 40 years and then he died. So how old was David when he died? 70. Look what it says about him. It says, in the time he reigned over Israel was 40 years, verse 28, and he died in a good old age, full of days. So now, 70 is old age. It's, get, it's dropping. I'm glad the Lord stopped around that point. <laughs> Man, because that's a long time ago that David lived. It, if it had kept dropping at that rate, we wouldn't have made it out of childhood. I mean, we, you, you wouldn't have made it past the kindergarten. <laughs> so, I mean, from 930, 500, 180, you know, 98, now David is 70 years of age. But now watch this. I'm not going to just give you um, um, anecdotal evidence, as they say, but we'll give you scriptural proof that from the days of David until today, that's where God established it. God drew the limits right there. That's a generation. All right? um, uh, in, this, in the same Time as David, remember Psalm 90 said, uh, Psalm 90 verse 10 said, 70, maybe if you're really, really healthy and strong, you make it to 80. There's a generation. Uh, go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19, because David had a, there was someone who was uh, alive during the days of David named Barzillai. And uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 19, 2 Samuel 19. And let's go down to verse number 32. 2 Samuel 19, verse 32. <clears throat> now, Barzillai was a very aged man, even fourscore years old. Wow. David's in a good old age, and Barzillai is really, 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 really pushing the limit. Eighty. So there you have, in David, and he's a contemporary with David. So there... In David's time period, you have 70 to 80, just exactly what Psalm 90 said. And both of these guys are old men, aged men in that time. All right, go to Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah chapter 23. Isaiah 23 and verse number 15 is a prophecy concerning judgment that would come upon the city of Tyre, which is in present-day Lebanon. And in Isaiah 23, verse 15, um, uh, well, let's see, verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This people was not till the Assyrian founded it for them that dwell in the wilderness. That's an interesting, by the way, connection between the Assyrian and, and, the, uh, and the Babylonians. They set up the towers thereof, I want to underline that because we're not going to get to that tonight, but this is one of the indications. Um, towers associated with uh, Nimrod, the first picture of an Antichrist that ruled Babylon. And when the kingdom of Babylon is set up, they're building towers. Um, they raised up the palaces thereof, and he brought it to ruin. How, ye ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Watch this, verse 15. And it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre shall be forgotten seventy years, according to the days of one king. To the days of one king. So, God, it doesn't say which king, it doesn't matter, it's a generic thing here. And God says, I'm going to judge the city of Tyre, They're going to be, I'm going to lay that city waste, that kingdom is going to be judged for the lifespan of a king, seventy years. So, that God's associating a period of judgment also with the lifespan of one person. All right, go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Remember, 
Jeremiah was a prophet who was alive during the time of judgment when the nation of Israel was judged the first time and Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was you know, wrecked and ruined and the children of Israel went away into captivity for how many years? Seventy years. All right? And so God's judgment came on them for the years of a king. Right? God judged them for one entire generation. There's, it's not an accident that periods of judgment and desolation in the Bible are usually 70 years. Um, and there's, a, there's a connection with that. Uh, go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at verse number 29. Jeremiah 7 and verse number 29. <clears throat> it says, Cut off thine hair, O Jerusalem, and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on high places. For the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Now, Jeremiah is alive when this was happening. It's his own generation that is going off into prison, into, into captivity. And God calls that those people that are alive at that moment, when God brought down the temple and destroyed Jerusalem and sent his people that he had loved and taken care of for all those years in the Old Testament, he sent them into captivity into Babylon. And he calls them, notice here, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. So it was the, the southern kingdom of Judah that went away. That was, and God called Judah the generation of his wrath. Um, put that together with Daniel. Now Daniel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet, probably an older man, an old man when he's prophesying. And Daniel was a young man who was in that group of captives that went away into Babylon. Jeremiah was talking about that generation that was going to, the generation of God's wrath that would suffer uh, for the years of a king. But in Daniel, and Daniel was one of those that went away into captivity. And notice what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the, year, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So that 70 years in Babylon, it's not a coincidence that God chose 70 years uh, because it had to do with what God considered to be a generation. All right, go with me, uh, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> and uh, Acts chapter 8. <clears throat> and uh, let's go down and find uh, verse number 33. Acts chapter 8, verse 33. It's speaking about the death of Jesus Christ. This is when the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in the chariot. He's reading Isaiah chapter 53. And, um, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. And so Philip gets up in the chariot with him. But notice what, notice what he's reading. It says in verse number 33, he's reading out of Isaiah 53. But in Acts 8, 33, it says, he's quoting, In his humiliation, that means the humiliation heaped upon Jesus Christ, his judgment was taken away. He did not get a fair trial. Right? He was railroaded. He was framed. There was no real judgment. I mean, there was no true and righteous judgment. All right? So he, uh, he didn't get a fair trial. That was God's will. He was humiliated. But notice it says, Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. In other words, Jesus Christ did not get to live out his generation. Who shall declare his life, in other words? Who is there to stand up and speak about this one whose life was taken out of the earth before his generation was complete, before he had an opportunity to live out those years that God had promised a man? Right? A righteous man in the Old Testament 
could fully expect to live a long and healthy life. In the Old Testament, long life was God's blessing for righteousness in the life of an individual. Now, that's not true in the New Testament, um, but under the Old Testament, under the law, if you were a godly person, you could expect to live a long life. And early death was normally a sign of God's disfavor, God's judgment upon you. So the most righteous man that ever lived on the earth could fully expect to live out that generation promised to him. Seventy years, and if by reason of strength, eighty. But who shall declare his generation because his life is taken from the earth? Who can explain this shortened life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he wasn't taken out of the earth for his own sin, but for ours. Right? So the prophet in, in Isaiah chapter 53, that's what Isaiah is talking about. Isaiah 53, verse number 8, is the one that... Um, that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading, it says he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. So in other words, it's simply saying his life was cut off. In the Old Testament, when you sinned against God, your life was cut off. So having your life shortened was not a sign of a good thing, it was a sign of a bad thing. So, in the Old Testament, if you did right, lived right, obeyed the law, your crops did well, your land did well, you stayed healthy, God kept the diseases of the world away from you. Some people wish, well, I wish I could live under the law. But under the law, those are not the promises of God for living righteously. Now, you may live godly and righteously, and God may have other reasons to, to allow you to suffer. And, but in the Old Testament, that was not the case. So, the Lord did not, his, his generation was cut off. But let me ask you this. If the Lord was around 30, 33 years of age when he was crucified, well, he would have been around 33 years of age, when would his generation have ended? Around 70 A.D. That generation... God allowed that generation that got to see the Lord Jesus Christ, that gener God only gave that generation the rest of the Lord's years. When that generation, when His, who shall declare His generation? That's why Jesus Christ said concerning that generation, His generation, He said an evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign, no sign shall be given it. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and said, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Because that generation was condemned. So God gave that generation the rest of the Lord's expected lifespan. That generation had till 70 A.D. They couldn't go any further. That generation was condemned. They had killed the Son of God. God would not allow that. that that's all they had. That generation came to an end in 70 A.D. And because the Lord didn't get to live out His generation. So that generation was cut off. That was a condemned generation in the, in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Um, uh, go to um, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> Luke chapter 11. And let's go down to Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Now, in Luke chapter 11, the Lord is pronouncing all kinds of judgment on all the religious leaders of His day. As usual, religion is always an enemy of the truth in every, in every period of time. It's, uh, it was no different when Jesus Christ was on the earth. The, the most religious people of his day were the ones that, were, that hated him the most and who conspired to kill him. So the truth is normally at odds with religion. And people don't understand that today. It just mystifies religious people. But, but when the Lord spoke to religious people in the Bible, he seldom had any kind words. It's not that he wasn't kind. When he was with the common people, wow, he loved them. He never raised his voice. I mean, 
they brought an adulterous woman right to his feet and dropped her down in front of him, caught in the very act of sexual sin. And Jesus Christ said, put her away. No. He said, after, you know, he convicted all of her accusers, who were all very, you know, religious guys, who wanted to see her stoned to death. Jesus, they, they all left, and the woman standing there, and Jesus said, uh, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And uh, everybody's gone. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Whew. That's the way he handled sinners. But religious people, oh my. <laughs> there was not that kind of charity. There was not that kind of patience. Because he saw their heart. He saw their motives. He saw the evil within them. And he never spoke that way to the Pharisees, the lawyers. The lawyers weren't the guys that practiced in, you know, you know, defending people in court. The lawyers meant the guys whose careers involved studying the law, the law of Moses. They were the ones who you'd come to for religious matters, and they would decide, well, yes, back there in Deuteronomy, you know, section 2, paragraph 4, you know, article number 3, and they were the ones that would decide, you know, that sort of stuff. And so were the guys that were supposed to know all the little minutia of the law. And they were some of the most evil guys. They were supposed to, like, know the, every jot and tittle of the Scriptures. They could argue all the stuff between the lines. But they were some of the most evil guys in the Bible. Notice how the Lord talks to them here. He says in verse 42, Woe unto you Pharisees. Woe doesn't mean slow down. Woe means you better duck because judgment is coming. Woe is a horrible word in the Bible. It's a horrible word. It's used in the book of Revelation and it means it's about to hit you on the head. The wrath of God. And Jesus Christ is pronouncing the judgment of God on these men. So he says, Woe unto you Pharisees. Judgment to you Pharisees. For ye tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs. You will, you know, because the Jews had to give a tithe. They have a, had to give a tithe of their crops, of their money, and so on and so forth. These guys were so... I mean, these guys crossed every T and dotted every I. They would tithe their mint and rue. They would tithe their herbs. Um, I, I was in the Philippines one time, and I was in a, preaching in a Bible conference for all pastors... Room full of pastors, 150 pastors. And I'm preaching right after this guy who decides to stand up and preach for an hour and 20 minutes on tithing. It was a real blessing. Room full of preachers, such a blessing. It was so edifying. It was, like so, it was so nauseatingly like dreary to sit through this about, you know, you've got to you give your 10% to God. And he was saying, even when he receives a shirt, a gift or anything, he was using a shirt as an example, and he was saying, as a pastor, sometimes you get gifts. And he said, someone bought me a shirt. He says, and I went out and researched the cost of that shirt, and I gave back to God my tithe of that shirt, my 10% of that shirt. Well, that's like a classic definition of a Pharisee, because that's what these guys did. They didn't just tithe their gold, and they didn't tithe their money and their crops. These guys are tying the er tithing the herbs in the jar. They get a certain amount of herbs, they make sure that... 10% of my herbs, 10% of the mint, 10% of this. I mean, these guys are going to make sure they don't violate the law in any way. And the Lord is pronouncing judgment on them? Whoa. It says, and pass over judgment and the love of God. You guys are keeping the law, but you don't love the Lord. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you Pharisees, for ye love the up, uppermost seats in the synagogue, greetings in the markets. Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. People look at you and, you know, you go to the cemetery and it's all pretty grass, but you can't see, like, what's underneath the grass. So that's what he's talking about. People look at you and you look, man, you look nice, religious, spiritual, holy. You know, walk around and look so holy and spiritual, but nobody really sees what's underneath. And um, that's true of many today. And verse 45, Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. You're, you're hurting my feelings. You, you're offended me. I'm offended at what you said. And verse 46, So the Lord, you know, of course, as soon as the guy said that, I'm offended at what you just said to me. The Lord apologized, right? No, in the next verse, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers. For ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the, of the prophets, 
You make their cemetery, you make your cemeteries look beautiful. You know, you got, you got shrines for this prophet and that prophet, but you guys are the ones that killed them. Your fathers killed them, and you build their shrines. It says, Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. Watch this. That the blood of all the prophets, it's a pretty heavy statement he's about to say, the blood of all the prophets, the responsibility for killing every prophet which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. That's how much, that's how much judgment was coming on that generation. God said, I'm going to hold you responsible for the deaths of every prophet all the way back to the beginning of the world. Those people that were alive in Israel when Jesus Christ was walking in their midst. That's... How would you like to have that on in the record of charges against you? God was holding that generation responsible. That's why the judgment of God came down so hard at the end of a generation, 70 years A.D., and that the city was destroyed, the nation was dispersed, more than a million Jews lost their lives in Jerusalem, some few thousand survivors you know, made it out to Masada, a big mountain fortress near the Dead Sea, and they held out there for a few years longer. But for the most part, the Jews were scattered to every part of the world, and they'd never had a nation since that day until 1948. Pretty wild, isn't it? That generation is pretty consistent with God. And you know, by the way, if you look it up, you know what the average lifespan of an individual today is? 70 AD. Just as it was in the days of David the king and Barzillai. So it, it, it got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until, until Moses wrote that, but those were collected. Those weren't, those, that prophecy of Moses wasn't collected until the book of Psalms was put together, which would have been you know, after the days of David. So from the time of David until the present, God has established what a generation is. So Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 24, the generation that's on the earth that sees that fig tree begin to put forth leaves, and that can only be one thing. Um, in 19, actually 1947 is when the UN declared that Israel would be a nation. It took six more months for them to actually you know, fight their enemies and, and declare it so. But the decree didn't go... The, like, you know, in the, in the book of Daniel chapter 9... God started counting from the time of the decree, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, from the going forth of the commandment. You know, God started, when King Cyrus issued that decree, that commandment that the children of Israel could go free, it might have been a long time before they actually reestablished themselves in Jerusalem, but God started counting as soon as the authority in charge at that time made the decree. God started the clock. And Israel didn't become a nation until May 1948, but the decree was made in November of 1947. So that's the date I have marked. I mean, I, I count Israel not from 48, but from 47. But there's a generation. I mean, the Bible's pretty consistent about what a generation is. And no, no, nobody's setting any dates here. But I'm just saying, you can see it's not another hundred years. You can see pretty clearly that's close. It's pretty close. And God said... That generation that is alive when Israel becomes a nation begins to get itself together. Right? There were Jews emigrating back to the land, the, the promised land, since the 1880s is when the, uh, I think Aliyah is what they call it. I don't know how to pronounce that. In, in, there's a Hebrew word for the immigration where they began to come back to the promised land. And they came back by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands from the 1880s all the way up until, and then it really picked up right after World War II. But at the day, but prior to, prior to uh, back in the 1800s, Israel was pretty much a, an, an, a not, it was not populated. I don't know what the right word for that is, but it was a barren land. There were very few people in that land in the 1800s. And I'm going to read that to you next Wednesday night. Eyewitness accounts of people that were in Israel in the late 1800s. And there were practically no people there. It was a barren, treeless, grassless, fruitless land from the top to the bottom. People toured it, wrote books about it. Their descriptions are available. You can write what people saw, 
What they didn't see in the late 1800s were trees, fruit, or people. And look at it now. Look at it now. One of the most productive and fruitful countries in the world since 1947. So... And we're going to give you a whole lot more next Wednesday night. I mean, this is sort of the foundation as to at least establish what a generation is. And then um, next Wednesday night, we're going to go down through a list of 20 things, 20 reasons why this is the last generation before the Lord comes. <clears throat> you guys need to, I think we all need to fasten our seatbelts. I think as a church, we need to make sure we're looking in the right direction. Make sure we got our priorities right. Make sure you're not wasting your time, your money, your energy on things that are not going to matter. They're not going to matter very soon. There's a whole lot of things that people are wasting a lot of time and money and energy on that are really not going to matter in the near future. And what a shame to be caught like a Laodicean church that doesn't even realize what's going on around them. Doesn't even realize they... You know, I don't know. The Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 was an ignorant church. They were ignorant of their own spiritual weakness. They were ignorant of the times they were living in. And uh, let's not be like that. Let's be a church that knows what time it is. And we're doing something with the time that we have. We need to be about our Father's business. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's bow our heads. Father, we do thank you that we have...